our last couple of times together, we've, we've been looking at one of the most challenging chapters in Scripture. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the end of the world. And the reason that this is challenging in trying to look for every detail in the text, <laughs> the whens, the wheres, the hows, we risk missing truths that can impact our future. So the questions we really should be asking, again, are we ready for Jesus? Are we ready for eternity? And things to remember, there's lots of difficult language, lots of confusing images. And this is language and image which Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, church-loving teachers, preachers, scholars have discussed for centuries (laughs) and have not agreed on (laughs) They've discussed a long time. They've discussed a long time. And as we've seen, as we've seen in, in, in this scripture, there's two overarching events in Matthew 24. The coming fall of Jerusalem, which happens some 40 years after this account, and the coming of the Son of Man. And today we're going to finish chapter 24. And in the midst of the heaviness of this message, the, the nearness of the Son's return, we will be reminded of the promises of God. And that's the beauty of that's the beauty of the gospel. And and last week, as we began, we we began with what some say is the most, one of the most. Some have said the most grace and hope filled verse in all of the New Testament. It's and it's Matthew chapter twenty four verse fourteen. Because in this verse, in this one verse, we see both our purpose and our hope. Matthew twenty four verse fourteen. As we begin. Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. That's the first thing. And then, then the end will come. Then the end will come. And, and that passage should fill us with hope. That, that passage should do that because it addresses both our purpose, our calling, our hope. So keeping that before us, look this morning, start at verse 32, and we're going to finish chapter, chapter 24. Verse 32, Jesus says... Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. The fig tree. I don't have a green thumb. (laughs) I don't know much about fig trees. I know about fig newtons. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Jesus, he points to the fig tree because there's, and we've seen in these kingdom encounters, he said lots about the fig tree, used it as, as object lessons to the disciples. One of the reasons he uses fig tree, the fig tree, it's indigenous to the area in which he is ministering and walking in Israel. And in our region, in our region in the springtime, I love to see red buds. I love red buds. I tell you, they're beautiful. And as I'm driving from home to church or wherever in early spring, I, I'm able to see when these red buds, they're, they're almost ready to burst forth and, and reveal their, their quaint majesty, their, their subtle beauty. And in the same way, I, I can microwave a mug of hot water to make hot tea. And I can tell when it's ready for the tea bag when I see, when I see the water boiling. I like my water hot past boiling. And I'm able to tell that. Uh, you can tell. 
You can tell when things are ready. Jesus is saying if you pay attention, you'll know. And you'll know that the Son of Man is near. He's, he's right at the door. He's at the door ready, waiting to enter. And he says in 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's weird. Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. Are these people still alive? More concerning is Jesus lying. No. The word of the Lord is truth. One writer said that this generation may mean the spiritual Israel, the generation of those that seek the Lord. And we see that in in Psalm 24, verse 6. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who who seek your face. There's an early church father, a teacher and a writer named John Chrysostom, and and he said this about verse 34 in one of, his, one of his writings. No one writes this way anymore. Let me read this. All these things shall surely come to pass, and the generation of the faithful shall remain, cut off by none of the things that have been mentioned throughout this chapter. And Chrysostom goes on and he says, Over this generation shall nothing prevail, not famine, not pestilence, not earthquake, not the tumults of wars, not false Christs, not false prophets, not deceivers, not traitors, not those that cause to offend, nor the false brethren, nor any other such like temptations, whatever. The Lord, as we You know, we sing our theology, and as we sang this morning, our hope is built on nothing, nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And and, and here's what we have to remember. The church is encouraged to hold fast to our faith. Christ loves His church, and He is holding on to His church. And as we trust Him, we are able, we are encouraged to remember to hold fast to the things of Him. He's not going to let us go. Amen to that our purpose, our calling, our hope. Look there at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Passing away is, is terminology which we, we use for death. It, it, sounds, it sounds less harsh. It sounds more sensitive, doesn't it, when so-and-so passes away. Heaven and earth will pass away. John's vision, which he has given, in Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, John shares this part of his vision. He says, Then I I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The Lord will make all things new. Isn't that good news? The Lord will make all things new except for one thing, His Word. His Word. My words will not pass away. Boy, that's sure not what a lot of folks think in these days, is it? If you were to look at the front of your Bible this morning, I would dare say that most of you on the flyleaf page or early there in your Bibles, you would see this verse from Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Doesn't that give you hope? It does me. The word of the Lord will stand forever. Jesus, the living word of God, the word made flesh, will stand forever. And the word is the same always, is it not? We, we see this in Hebrews 13.8. The writer of Hebrews says this, that Jesus Christ, the living word, is the same yesterday, the same today, and the same tomorrow. Jesus goes on and he says in verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Let me say that one more time. 
But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. We read in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The Son of God voluntarily has set aside, he's emptied some aspects of himself. As I'm writing the sermon this week, as I'm looking through the text this week, I'm struggling to make sure that I say things that I'm, that I'm trying to write things as accurately as I can because I don't understand in full. No one does. These aspects of, of the essence of, of Godhood, which Jesus has set aside. It, it's hard for us to get our heads around this. Jesus, he, he's all God, but he's all man. But he's all God. <laughs> but he's all man. But, but he's all God. But he's all man. Jesus can heal, but Jesus gets hungry. Jesus can cast out demons, but Jesus needs to rest. Jesus knows the lifestyle of the woman at the well, but Jesus is surprised by the faith of a Gentile. The the picture of man, of bondservant that Paul uses in his language there, it's a picture that represents some degrees of human limitation. And there are things that evidently Jesus doesn't know in this passage, in his humanness. The old pulpit commentary says it like this, and again, I love how these things are worded. No one writes this way anymore. Listen to this regarding these limitations that that the Lord has placed upon himself. It's enough for us to know that for reasons which seemed good unto him, he imposed restrictions on his omniscience, his his all-knowingness in this matter, and to enhance the mysteriousness and awfulness of the great day, the great day of the Lord, the Son of Man, and His coming. To enhance this mysteriousness and this awfulness, Jesus announced to His disciples His ignorance of the precise moment of its occurrence. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. We remember the story of Noah, don't we? Who is Noah? Well, a quick reminder, we've got to go back to the very beginning of the Bible to see Noah. Genesis chapter 6 and 7, I'm going to give you a brief summation. The Lord sees the wickedness of man, and the wickedness of man is great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of the heart of man is on only evil continually. Not much has changed. (laughs) The Lord is sorry that he made man on the earth, and he is grieved in his heart. And the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Noah and his family. And, the, and, and then God says to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark. And then the Lord gives Noah specifics on how to build the ark. 
Behold, I, even as I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life, God breathed the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives, with you. And every living thing of all flesh, and we go on to read it's birds and animals and every creeping thing, the Lord says, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. You know what that says right there? It says that the Lord, you know, He doesn't deal with gender confusion, does He? Male and female. Verse, or chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord says to Noah, enter the ark. Then Noah and his family and the animals enter the ark because of the water of the flood. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God commanded, as God commanded Noah. And then the Lord closed the ark behind Noah. Then the flood came. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 38, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. And two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Jesus points to the mystery of the timetable. Life will be happening. Life is going on. And think about what happened with Noah in his day. Think about those days. Life is in full swing. Life is going on. There's eating and and drinking and and marrying and and, and parents. Parents experiencing the, the bittersweet joy of giving daughters away in marriage. Beautiful, beautiful things. Life is in full swing. Life is going on and... But here's something else about eating and drinking, which is interesting. The words which Jesus uses in the original language, the words he uses for eating and drinking are akin to ravenous gluttony, gnawing, and binge drinking. Life is not just going on for some. For some, life is out of control. And and just... As at the moment when the first drop of rain fell, and that moment when when the Lord closed the door of the ark behind Noah and his family, in the same way in these days when the time is coming and and where there's going to be shock and misunderstanding, and like in the days of Noah, what were once displays of revilement and amusement in regard to God's faithful those displays of making fun, those will become blind panic and terror for some. One shall remain. <laughs> Boy, there's lots of stuff which has been written about being left behind. Um, lots of discussion, lots of, lots of viewpoints, <laughs> lots of, you know, what the timetable, the order of events, all these words we hear a lot. But of what we are certain is this, there's going to be a separation. We've seen this in Matthew earlier, and we, we will see it actually again one more time. There's going to be a separation of persons. Jesus then gives us three pictures of varying responses to the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 42, Jesus says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. 
But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. This first picture, this image of the thief sneaking in. The other weekend we watched that classic Hitchcock film from the 1950s, To Catch a Thief. The tale of a former cat burglar, played by Cary Grant, exonerated for his past crimes due to his heroic military service in World War II, he is now being accused of a new set of burglaries on the French Riviera. And these high society victims there on the Riviera, they feel safe, they feel untouchable, and and, and after nights of, of celebration and revelry, they, they, they go to sleep with not a concern or worry. They're, they're not paying attention. They're slumbering. They're not on the alert. They're not ready. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and sensible servant whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master finds so doing when he comes... Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. This second picture, the responsibility of of provision. If one is in charge of food, if one is in charge of food for the household, one has to be proactive, prepared. One has to be mindful of, of time and budget. If, if John, little Johnny and little Susie and little Tommy, if they've got to be here and there and wherever and, and we've got this window of time in which to eat and we know they've got to be wherever and we've got to have, this is going to be the meal on Thursday, then we've got to have this plan and what time do I put this in the crock pot or what? We understand how that works. We, we've got to be ahead of the game and on the ball. It's a big responsibility. But you know, responsibility has its rewards, doesn't it? Again, these, these, these writers from other years say things in ways that we don't say them. Uh, a, a writer named Ellicott says it like this regarding this reward of responsibility. The words are noteworthy in this verse, as among the indications that the work of the faithful servant does not cease, either after his own removal from his earthly labor or even after the final consummation of the kingdom. When the Son of Man comes, the new heaven, the new earth, the consummation of the kingdom, even in paradise, there will still be a work to be done, which will be similar to the man's training here. And in it, there will be scope for all the faculties and energies that have been thus disciplined and developed. Isn't that great writing? Yes, it is. I mean, I love it. We'll still have responsibilities and glory. Do you know that? We'll still be serving in our strengths. And that famous verse, we're actually going to see it next chapter. That famous scripture of Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The rewards of being responsible. One more picture. Look at 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time, (laughs) evil chuckle, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. This third picture, the temptation of irresponsibility. 
while the cat's away, authority is abused. Jesus says the master of that servant will come on a day when the servant doesn't, ex- doesn't expect the master and at an hour which he does not know. And the servant will be cut in pieces and the master will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The consequence of irresponsibility. There's this picture of horrible physical punishment. And we've seen throughout history, we've seen this kind of punishment in history. And we've seen it in Matthew, this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Utter despair, where there is no relief, no consolation, no one will say it's going to be okay. Mm. Look back at verse 36 for just a moment, please. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The Father on that day, the Father on that day and in that hour will tell the Son, it's time. That well-known verse in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you go a few verses earlier than where we read just now at 36, if you go to verse 33, look at how 33 ends with the Son of Man right at the door. It's a powerful image. The Savior is ready. Are we ready? I've asked you the last few times throughout this chapter, are you ready? And, and this is how you know. Do you, do you feel conviction about your sin? We're all sinners. Jesus taking our sins to the cross has given us his righteousness. He, this is righteousness that's required for us to stand before a holy God. And we need the righteousness of the Lord because we're all sinners. And as we know, as we've heard before, you've heard me say, the wage of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans chapter 6. And, and Jesus dying on the cross has paid the price of the wages of our sin. What is quickly becoming my, my favorite verse for this season of life, Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God showed us his great love by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. Only Jesus can deal with sin. And and if you and I can come to the place that we understand that as sinners we deserve death and that we need a Savior and we can step past our, our pride to trust in Jesus being the only one who can die for us, deal with our sin, and be restored to life. If we confess our sin and our need for Jesus, and if we trust in that, if we have the belief, we have the faith that Jesus can pull all of this off, we can have a relationship of peace with God. That, friends, is what should give us hope. (laughs) Amen? Amen. Are you ready? Let's pray together. Lord, words words of heavy, words of weight, but Father, a word of grace and hope Because we are given clear warning to be ready. Your Son, the Son of Man, is near. Lord, help us to make sure that we understand how to be ready. In the gracious name of your Son, amen.